0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Revelation chapter 19. I want to do some recap. And I feel like I have to do this every week because if you're like me, I lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes in the book of Revelation... And like I said every week, I don't expect you guys to remember all the minute details. You really kind of have to step back from Revelation and kind of get that, that big picture. So I want to go back to chapter 1. We're going to start again. Okay, you guys ready to start over? No, cha- cha- chapter 1. Maybe that would be helpful. Um, chapter 1, verse 9. I just want to remind you who's writing this, the context in which he's writing and how it impacts us. So chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John says, I'm your partner. I'm your brother in tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance. Because of the testimony of Jesus. So, quick question. If you hold to the testimony of Jesus in this world, will you experience tribulation? Do you need to patiently endure? Okay, John warns us from the very beginning that that's what this is about. Okay, let's go to chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And let's just see this again. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around. Then you go on down to verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So, believers who hold fast to Christ will experience tribulation. That's a fact you can take to the bank. Okay, Jesus teaches it. The Bible teaches it. Okay, so when we get to chapter 12, we get more specific as to the source behind the tribulation, the source behind the persecution. So in chapter 12, we saw the graphic description of the great red dragon, Satan, who attacks the church with great wrath. So enemy numero uno is Satan, the great red dragon who attacks the church. In chapter 13, we saw the beast from the sea or the Antichrist who represents totalitarian governments who oppress God's people through persecution. Now, Satan is the mastermind behind. He's pushing forward the agenda of the beast from the sea, but the beast from the sea is really totalitarian governments coming from outside the church to bring pressure on them. Also in chapter 13, we saw the other beast from the earth. Separate from the beast from, from the sea, the beast from the earth is the false prophet. That represented um, the danger of false doctrine from within the church. that tries to corrupt the church. And again, that's being precipitated by uh, the great red dragon. So you have an unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. The dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land. Or you could say it this way. The unholy trinity is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The three that make up the unholy trinity. Okay? Now, let's go to chapter 13 and read verses 8 through 10. Chapter 13, 8 through 10 because I want you to see this theme, tribulation, tribulation. We're going through persecution. you got to endure. There's enemies coming against us. Chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. All who dwell on earth, who will worship it, that is the beast, the false, uh, not the false prophet, but the Antichrist, the first beast from the sea. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain if anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword he must be slain here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints now there's great comfort in this passage even though it looks kind of ominous okay what's the comfort in this passage Believers have been chosen before the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the world was created. God sovereignly chose you to be saved. That should give you great comfort. Okay, number two, God is sovereign over our lives and works out all things according to His perfect plan. So if God chose you before the foundation of the world, God saved you in time right now. He's ensuring that his perfect plan is being unfolded in your life. Now, does that perfect plan, is that sometimes feel good? Does that perfect plan include tribulation? Yes. Okay, just because it's God's perfect plan doesn't mean that it's like feels good all the time. Okay, and here's the thing in light of tribulation and assaults from the unholy trinity and let me just remind you of which our sovereign God ordains to come against us by his permission. Okay, This is something that I think I think you, you asked me Chelsea last week and I hopefully I addressed maybe there's some confusion on this. Satan can only do what God ordains and permits him to do. Which should give you comfort because Satan can't go beyond God's sovereign decree. Now, God may ordain Satan and his minions to come against us, but it's under God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign protection. So if there is an unholy trinity out there and there's a call for endurance, there's tribulation, what must we do in the meantime as Christians? Persevere. Persevere. Hold fast our faith. Endure to the end. It's called perseverance of the saints. We are to persevere to the end. Do we persevere by our own blood, sweat, and tears, or do we persevere because God gives us the grace to persevere? God gives us the grace to persevere, but we must persevere. Okay? So we've seen the unholy trinity. Now, the the, the number three kind of gets messed up here. (laughs) We saw a fourth enemy last week. Chapter 17 We were introduced to Babylon, the prostitute. This prostitute represents the world system that champions sexual immorality, materialism, and idolatry. So you really have four enemies coming against you when you think about it. Think of Satan behind all of it. And he's pushing forward Governments coming against the church, false doctrine coming from within the church, and materialism and sexual immorality influencing the church. Now, and now we're swimming in that culture, are we not? Maybe, not? maybe two of them are what we experience in America. We probably don't have a totalitarian government yet. We still have freedom. But do we have, do we have false doctrine all around us? And do we have sexual immorality and idolatry and materialism around us? Okay, so regardless of whether this is a day in the future, we have these right now. So I could sit here and tell you, all this stuff in Revelation is going to happen in the future, so you don't have to worry about it. Or I could say, this stuff's happening right now. Be prepared and endure and and, and face the fact that this is something that you're going to have to live in. Okay. Now, Babylon fell in chapter 17, actually in chapter 18. So chapter 17 was a description of Babylon. In chapter 18, God destroys Babylon with one fell swoop. And if you remember, everybody on earth is mourning, is crying that Babylon has fallen because they're not getting drunk on um, her seductions anymore. So the main point of chapter 18 shows us that we as believers are to rejoice over God's judgment of Babylon because she deserved God's wrath. She deserved to be destroyed. She was causing the world to get drunk on her idolatry, and God judges her. So, how many enemies have been destroyed yet in Revelation out of the four? One. Which is that? Babylon. Okay, the world system. There's still three more. False prophet, beast from the sea, i.e. the Antichrist, and Satan himself. So as we get into chapter 19, we have the entire assembly of believers in heaven praising God because final judgment has come. Here We're at final judgment. This is finally the end. We've been looking at the cycle. Chapter 6, we thought it may have ended. You get to chapter... 14, 15, it may have ended, chapter 16. Okay, here we go. It's actually ending now. And the reason we know it's ending is because one of those enemies is defeated. And in chapter 19, two more enemies will be defeated. So it goes in reverse order of how they're introduced. Who was introduced first? Satan. Then who was introduced second? The Antichrist. Who was introduced third? The false prophet. Who was introduced fourth? Babylon. Who gets, who gets thumped first? <laughs> Babylon, okay, so we're going to go, so we know the last enemy is going to be Satan. That's going to be, and so we have to wait a little while. So let's jump into chapter 19, and let's just look at verses 1 through 6. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now let's just stop right there. We're assuming this great multitude reflects back to chapter 6 which would be all tribes, tongues, kindreds, and those that have been redeemed from the earth, plus the angelic chorus, plus the 24 elders, plus the four living creatures. So this is the entirety of heaven. You remember back in chapter 6, that concentric circles, if you remember? You've got the, the four living creatures that are right next to the throne. You've got the 24 elders. Then you've got myriads upon myriads of angels. Then you have all the redeemed. Okay. It's not specifically laid out there, but that great multitude in heaven, I take to be the entirety of those that are in heaven. And they're crying out. What are they saying? Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His saints, I mean of His servants. Okay, let's just stop right there. What has been the cry of the martyrs in the book of Revelation? Back in chapter 6. What was chapter 6? You don't have to turn there because I'll have it on your sheet here. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long... Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so the martyrs are crying out under the altar, How long are we gonna to have to, or how long are we gonna to have to be martyred? How long are we gonna to have to be persecuted? How long are Christians gonna to have to be killed for their faith? And what was the answer back in chapter six? It wasn't a comforting answer. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been killed. So what are the martyrs told? I'm not going to tell you how long it is. You're just going to have to wait. There's a certain number, a certain number of, of martyrs. There's a certain ordained time. But their cry is, man, we've been killed for our faith. God, you've got, to, you've got to pour out justice. Okay. To me, and we're so far removed from this, but if you go like to Voice of the Martyrs um, or you think about, You know, what's going on, especially like even in China right now where they're cracking down on stuff. North Korea. I get these emails. Somebody from North Korea emails me from time to time. And basically says, you need to be praying for what's going on to the Christians in North Korea. And they will give me graphic descriptions of what happens. I can't tell you here in this room because it's just too graphic. It breaks my heart. And so there's a sense of justice for those that have been killed violently for their faith. So that sense of justice, those martyrs are saying, how long are we going to have to endure this? And God says, wait. That's been the cry. Now look at chapter 19, verse 2. His judgments are true and just, for he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and... He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. What has God done right here? He's avenged their blood. Justice has come. Babylon has fallen. Okay, Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Okay, what's repeated three times in this short passage of Scripture, verses 1-5? through five? Hallelujah! 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 Praise ye the Lord! Remember that song from the old days? Hallelujah! Now, do you guys know what Hallelujah means? Yah, Yahweh, Hallel. So Hallel in Hebrew means praise. It means praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. That's all Hallel means is praise the Lord. So there is a cry to praise the Lord because He has finally at least judged the first enemy, Babylon, has fallen. It reminds you of what they said back in the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms, often there's, there's the Hallelujah Psalms, the Hallel Psalms that are up there um, in, you know, in, the, in the upper numbers. Uh, but Psalm 106, 42 through 48, Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So there is a universal praising of the Lord for judging Babylon who has fallen. Okay Now we get to verses six through 10, the marriage supper of the lamb. Very interesting imagery. Okay? So let's read this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out, what do they pray out again? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, hallelujah. Okay, let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Jerusalem. Now you have a tale of two women Babylon, the prostitute, and the bride of Christ, the church. Who's been destroyed? Okay. Now comes the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it says the bride has made herself ready. And it says it was granted to her to clothe herself with white robes. So two things are said about us as the church. So the bride is the church. How do we know that? Well, you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the church being the bride of Christ. And she's wearing a wedding dress, a white, a white, white garments, clothing that's you know pure. But it says two things about there. She's made herself ready, but it was granted to clothe herself. So it's interesting the terminology that talks about, okay, so how do you become part of the bride? Or let me ask you a different way. How do you become a Christian? Okay. 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 You, you see two things here in this passage of Scripture. You see human responsibility. She made herself ready. Do you save yourself? Okay, No, but are we called to trust Christ for salvation and be ready for the last day? Okay. So, regardless of what you believe about God's sovereignty there is a responsibility placed upon all people everywhere to believe in Jesus, okay? So let's just look at some of those passages of Scripture. Jesus, in Mark 1.15, the saying, He came saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. What's your responsibility? To repent and believe in the gospel, okay? Is that an option? Okay, Let's just stop right there. I mean, let me give you an analogy. Is this an invitation that can be politely declined or is this a summons that can't be refused? Let me give you the difference. You go to your mailbox today and you 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 open it up and there's an invitation to a wedding, an invitation to a birthday. You can pull it out and say, I got an invitation to somebody's birthday. I really don't want to go. You can politely, you know, RSVP, nobody really RSVPs anymore, but you can RSVP, i, I got to wash my hair that night, or, you know, i got to do something. So I really don't want to go to your party. I can politely decline the invitation because it's just coming from a person that's kind of wants me to come, but there's no, there's no authority there. Okay. All right. The next day you go to your mailbox and you get, which is common here in Sterling, I found out, a jury summons, juror number such and such, and the report date. Do you have a choice whether you can politely decline that? Well, you can, but you'd be in cont- next like you. <laughs> so you can't really deny a jury summons because it comes from the authority of the court. It's calling you, it's summonsing you to, a, to, to, to something, and there's authority behind that. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, is he just saying, hey, it's an invitation open to you if you want to take it or not? Or is he saying, I'm the king, I'm the Lord. This is a summons from the king. And to, def- to, to not respond is to defy the king okay so we have a responsibility to call all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel because jesus came preaching them what did they preach in acts peter in acts two thirty eight at pentecost peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit it's a command you must repent okay Acts 17.30, Paul on Mars Hill, talking to the Athenians about their unknown God. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 26.20, but declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This was one thing that I never was taught when I was growing up repentance and faith. I was taught growing up just ask Jesus into your heart. You can have him as your Savior, and then later on down the road, you can make him Lord. Okay, a couple of things wrong with that. Number one, you can't take Jesus as your Savior and not take Him as your Lord. Number two, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He already is Lord, regardless of what you do with Him. He is the Lord. And repentance is more than just, hey, I'm sorry for my sins and I want a free ticket to heaven. Repentance is, I'm owning up to my sin, I'm seeing the gravity of my sin, and I'm turning from that sin and turning to Christ. Yes, Paul. Now, is this essentially what John the Baptist was Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, John the Baptist was a message of repentance. Yeah, and Jesus preached repentance. Jesus' first words out of his mouth in Mark are, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' last words out of his mouth in Luke, before he goes up to heaven, he told the disciples, you should preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. How does Acts start? Peter stands up and preaches, repent. You trace all the sermons through Acts, repent. Repent. So our call to sinners everywhere, you must repent and believe in Jesus. That's how you become part of the bride. You have a responsibility. You have a command. You must repent and believe. Okay. But, go back there. So the bride has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? She repented and believed. She became a Christian through repentance and faith. But it was granted her to clothe herself. We had our little group last night. We talked about, um, so some of you, Brent and others that are, granted. If God grants something, does He grant just the opportunity for it to happen or does He actually grant it? Okay, so let me ask you a question. This is an interesting question. It's about grace. Is grace something God offers Or is grace something God actually confers? It's not something God offers. When God shows grace, He actually grants it. So what does God grant here? God granted the bride to clothe herself. Yes, Paul. That kind of goes along with the definition of grace. God's unmerited. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of like unconditional. Yeah, God... Yeah, God doesn't just give you an opportunity. He actually gives you. So what I'm saying here is God God grants you God grants you repentance and faith. This is a discussion for a whole other time, so we'll just throw it out there and we'll move on. You would not you have a responsibility to repent and believe. But You can't repent and believe because of your sin, so God has to give you the ability to repent and believe. God grants it. So there's a human responsibility in the gospel call. Yes, you must believe. You must choose Christ. You must come to Christ. You must repent and believe. But God is the one that... So so there's the second element in this passage of Scripture. There's God's sovereignty. We can't save ourselves. It must be granted to us as a free gift. God must grant us. So what must we do to be saved? Repent, believe, come to Christ, trust in Christ. Does everybody agree that with that? Hopefully, in order to be saved, you must come to Christ. Okay, let's listen to Jesus' words in John six forty four. No one can what? Come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can we come? Not unless something happens. No one can come unless God draws him. John 6, 65. That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's what? Where's that word there? Granted him by the Father. The same word you see there in Revelation. It was granted to clothe themselves. You can't come. You can't trust unless it's granted. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him on the last day. I raised Him up with us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it's the gift of god and then philippians 129 for it has been granted to you that you for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also to suffer for his sake that's a that's a very incur- <laughs> all right so here's here's the point god has to grant you the faith to believe and God also grants that you suffer for that faith. <laughs> well, thanks, God. I mean, we like the, okay, okay, so God has to grant you the gift of faith, and then God also ordains that you that you suffer for the name of Christ. And then Ezekiel says we have dead, stony hearts that need to be replaced. If, Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you um, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules so how do you become a Christian you repent and believe why do you repent and believe because God granted for you to repent and believe can you save yourself no it's a free gift of grace can you come to Christ no God has to make you alive or draw you or bring you to, to, to faith. So they've made themselves ready. There's the human responsibility. They repented and believed. They, they were ready to be the bride through repentance and faith. But it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, let's just stop because there may be some confusion here. Let me just ask you a question based upon all that we just read here about salvation being a free gift of grace. Do you earn your salvation by good deeds? Absolutely not. Okay, what does Isaiah say about our good deeds? They are like a filthy garment. What is she wearing? She's wearing pure linen, bright and pure. So let's just be real careful here. It was granted for her to wear this. She didn't earn the... The church did not earn the wedding dress. The wedding dress was given to the church to wear out of grace. That's kind of a metaphorically way of saying it. Let me say it a little bit easier here. In essence, the church has not earned this whiteness or righteousness through our own deeds. Christ has made us white by His grace and blood. But... The evidence that we have persevered to the end in faithfulness is symbolized by white garments. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to walk in the works that He prepared beforehand. That we should do good. I'm kind of paraphrasing. That we should do good works. So, are we saved by grace? Are we saved for good works? Do we do good works to get saved? What's evidence we have been saved? Good works. Okay. If you have the fruit of if you have the root of salvation, you will have the fruit of salvation, which is good works. So when it says the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, it's not that the righteous deeds of the saints is what got them prepared to be Christians. It was evidence that they were Christians through grace alone. Okay? So this is not only the tale of two cities: Babylon, the scarlet harlot versus the New Jerusalem as the bride and white, but there are two suppers at the end of the age. And we'll see that in this passage of Scripture. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's the great supper of God where His enemies are destroyed, and the birds are invited to eat the flesh of those who are destroyed by God's judgment. So There's two suppers going on here. Now, a humorous way of saying is this. Either you will eat or you will be eaten. Either you are a guest who dines or you're the dinner. The angel said to me, write this, blessed. It's a beatitude, blessed. Happy are those, blessed are those who are called. More technical word there, called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, our English translations use the word Invited. But again, when I talk about invitation, it's probably not the best translation of that. In our English, what's the difference between being invited and being called? If you're invited, what can you do? You can decline. If you're called or summoned, what happens there? Okay, so I'm going to talk about something real quick here. If God draws you and God grants you and God calls you, If God calls you to salvation, what what we would believe here at Emmanuel and what we believe the Bible teaches is it's it's what we call an effectual or a powerful or even the term irresistible. It's an irresistible call. Meaning when God calls you, are you going to come? Yes. Yes. Why are you going to come when God calls you? Because you've been granted the gift of faith. He's drawn you. He's calling you. Okay? So blessed, the original language here says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not just like, hey, you're invited. You can choose to come or not. No, these are, we as Christians are called the called. Okay? Now, there's a similar parable that talks about call. So let's just put this English translation, invited, and let's talk about the Greek word. By the way, the Greek word, it sounds like call, kaleo. That's the Greek word for called. Kaleo. Okay? So let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. And let's read a parable of Jesus that's also talking about a marriage supper and being <coughs> called... And it's using the same terminology. So, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. It's the parable of the wedding feast. Okay. Is everybody there, Matthew 22, 1 through 14? Here we go. Matthew 22. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding... Hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What's the point of this parable? Somebody got into the wedding feast in their own works of righteousness. They didn't have the right clothing. So how do you get the right clothing? Do you produce the right clothing? God has to grant you that clothing. Somebody walks in that doesn't have wedding garment on him. What, what does the guy say? Uh, you're supposed to be in here with a tux. And you don't have a tux. You, you come in here dressed all shabbily. I don't have a tux for you to wear. As a matter of fact, I'm going to cast you into outer darkness. You can't come into the wedding feast. You have to be in hell because you did, not have the appro- you did not come in the appropriate way. You came in in your own righteousness. You came in in your own works. You did not come in by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay? The word there invited in the parable is the same word for called. So the Bible talks about a calling to people to come to faith in Christ. Romans 8.30 Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. 1 Corinthians nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Thessalonians, I guess I better put these scriptures up, 2 Thessalonians 2.13-14, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Okay, let's talk about calling here for a moment. This is not in your notes, but I just thought it would be, just kind of popped into my head, which is a dangerous thing when you're dealing with theology. Okay, so so let's talk about calling. There's an outward, what we call outward general call. And there's what we call an inward effectual call. Okay. So, let me just show you how this works. On a Sunday morning, when I'm preaching from the pulpit, I don't know who all out there is saved and who's not. So, I make a general outward call of the gospel to everybody in that room and call them to repent and believe. You must repent and believe. You hear me every Sunday. Different language I use, but come to Christ, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, repent and believe. You must repent and believe. It's an outward call. Okay. I give that to everybody. But there's an inward call, an effectual call, whereby the Holy Spirit does a work of conviction and regeneration and softening and actually brings a person to faith. So when we talk about the calling of God, yeah, everybody's called in general. Many are called. But only those whom God is drawing are the ones that are going to come because they receive the effectual inward call. Does that that make sense? All right, now, I told you the word calling. What was the word calling in Greek? You guys remember? Kaleo. Kaleo. Okay. Kaleo. Okay, I'm going to teach you some Greek. Kaleo means called. When you put the um, little prefix ek in front of a Greek word, it means out of. Okay, so let me give you a word here, ekklesia. Does anybody know what ekklesia is? It's the Greek word for church. Ecclesiastical, it's the Greek word for church. So the word church means the called out ones. The ones God has called out. What's he, what they've been called out of? Kaleo also means not only called, but it means chosen. It can mean called or chosen. So the church is the called out ones or the chosen ones, the ones that God has called out to be the assembly of of believers. So the bride, the church here in Revelation 19, is made up of those who have been sovereignly chosen by God, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and who at a point in time God called them to salvation through His regenerating power. So what have we been called out of? Called out of ones. Okay, so if we've been called out of something, what have we been called out of? Well, 1 Peter 2.9 tells us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who what? Called you out of? darkness into his marvelous light so what is the church it's a body of believers who've been sovereignly called out of darkness into light to be the pure people of God you must repent and believe you can't save yourselves it's a free gift of grace God Washes you white as snow through the blood of Christ and makes you acceptable to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I'm not going to give away too much of my sermon this Sunday. In the Passover, what did they do? They ate a meal. In the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We eat a meal. As a matter of fact, in the Lord's Supper, it says, We proclaim his death until he comes. So, until Jesus comes back, we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper over and over again. Okay, this is like ultimately the Lord's Supper because what's happened? He's come. Yeah. Right. And you're no longer eating a memorial meal of the wine or the, the cup and the bread that symbolizes Jesus. Who are, where are you eating? At the very table with Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is a precursor or is a picture of what ultimately is going to happen at the end of the age when we're not going to memorialize Jesus' death anymore. We're going to be with them in person. I don't know how big this table is going to be. I don't know what food we're going to eat. I don't know if this is metaphorical or symbolic or literal. All I know is that blessed are those who've been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you one of those that's ready? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you have a relationship with Jesus so that you will be at the table eating and not the one eaten by the birds of the air? I, mean, I can't make it any more graphic than the way the book of Revelation does that, okay? All right. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper. I just find this to be so wonderful because we don't quite get the gravity of eating a meal that the ancient culture did. And that ancient Mediterranean Near Eastern culture, when you invited somebody into your home for a meal, it was the ultimate act of intimacy. To share a meal at the table meant we're friends, we're knit together, we are, we have a solid relationship. Who are we eating with at this meal? All the believers in Jesus, and out of all the metaphors you can think of, why would eating a meal be the one they, that you chose? That's great. It's a great thing to do. It's a great thing to do. Here's my point. Why do we as Baptists eat a lot, have potlucks, and all that kind of stuff? Because they're going to be eating a lot in heaven. <laughs> Not. This gives you permission to eat. No, I'm just joking. So anyway, all right. So let's move on. Now we're going to shift gears to the rider on the white horse. That's what we've been waiting for the entire book, right? The return of Christ. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is none other than the second coming of Jesus, what we call the parousia, the coming, the appearing. It's taught all throughout the New Testament. This is just a metaphorical, symbolic. Now, I don't know, guys. Here, the way we've been taking Revelation all along, okay? How we've been taking it, literally or so, okay? Is Jesus literally going to be riding on a white horse with fire coming out of his eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, or is this symbolic language? To to, to, to symbolic language, okay? One thing we do know is that he will come back, okay? So, what is Matthew twenty-four? 29-31. Jesus teaches this about Himself. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the, earth, of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Jesus will literally, physically, visibly return to planet Earth, and everybody will see it. He will come in the clouds with power and great glory, and it will be loud. The angels are going to announce it. Yes, Paul. Where one is more specific and the other is more allegorical? Like a revelation I, think it's allegorical. This, I think it's one and the same event. Okay. Jesus is describing it here in like more realistic terms. Yeah. Revelations expressing it in more symbolic terms of what those images of Christ mean. And we'll get to that in just a moment. It's, I think it's one and the same event. One is told from an apocalyptic symbolic vantage point. Jesus tells it more from a straightforward vantage point. Make sense. Even so, there's not a lot of details about this, even from Jesus. It just says he's going to come on the clouds, people are going to see him, there's going to be a loud trumpet. It's I think it's I think I think there's some things about the end times and the return of Christ that are purposely left cryptic. So for the past 2000 years, theologians can make things up and write books and sell books and people can sit around late at night and say, "I wonder what." Okay. I think we're purposely meant to be in the dark because it is the glory he's coming with great power and glory like nothing we've ever seen before in our lives stop and think about the coming of christ now we're going to look at the language used here and and why does john use this language because of the symbolism behind the manner in which christ comes okay we also see this in second thessalonians 1 7 through 10 so jesus has jesus describes his coming Paul describes the coming here in 2 Thessalonians. John describes it more in metaphorical, symbolic, apocalyptic language. What does Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10? And to grant you relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. What do we know is similar in both of those? He's coming with His mighty angels. This says in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled, about, marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul says he's going to come in flaming fire with the angels to inflict vengeance, but he's coming back. Now, this is a highly symbolic visual picture of what, and to answer your question, Paul, it's the same event that Paul described there in 2 Thessalonians, the same event Jesus described in Matthew 24. This is just John's, John gives 12 descriptions. 12 descriptions of how Jesus comes back. He could have just said, John could have just said, I saw heaven open and Jesus came back. But that wouldn't be very exciting. It's supposed to grab our imagination. This is a vision, okay? So Jesus is on, number one, on a white horse. Okay? What does a white horse represent? Number one, purity and power and sovereignty. Okay. He's not riding, he's not coming back on a on a pig or a sloth or a donkey or a caterpillar. Or donkeys, okay. Some people like their donkeys. Um, He's coming back. What a horse represents. When you think about, when you look at a horse, and a lot of you are horse people You have horses, there's probably nothing more beautiful or regal or majestic than just a horse. When you get up close to a horse, um, they're just, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's number one. Oh, yeah. The main guy. Yeah, they would all... Yeah, royal, royalty would walk in on a white horse. It represents royalty, purity, majesty, regalness. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Remember, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's, he was faithful to His Father. Go back and look at the Gospel of John. Jesus says over and over in the Gospel of John, I always do what pleases the Father. I've come to fulfill the work of the Father. He was faithful to the very end to the will, will of His Father. And He's true. He is faithful and true. Okay? Number three, in righteousness He judges and makes war. Well, that's not the, that's not the little Jesus walking around with the feathered hair and the British accent holding a little lamb, you know, walking around the Galilee and pet, you know, with the pithy statements. This Jesus comes back in flaming fire. To make war. Okay. His eyes. The next one, his eyes were like, were like, remember John uses were like flames of fire, showing that symbolism. This goes back to Revelation 1.14. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees all things. He has many crowns. Crown him with many crowns. The Lamb upon the... Okay. So, who else is wearing crowns? The dragon had seven, and the beast had ten. There's no number for Jesus because he has more crowns than all of those bad dudes. He's sovereign over there. I've got, you know, Satan, I've got seven crowns. Jesus like, you've got no crowns. I've, I've got myriads of crowns. I'm the ultimate king. Now, this is an interesting one. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. This kind of goes back to chapter 2, verse 17. Now, we don't know what this is. So there's been some speculation. Because it says, are we going to know what this is? Just read it straight up. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. So you can guess all you want, but the only person that knows is Jesus. Okay? So some people have said, well, maybe it's the unspoken Yahweh that's too sacred to pronounce. Maybe it's Yahweh written. Or maybe it's a reference to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or, probably most likely, it's the secret mysterious name whose meaning is hidden from all created beings that Jesus keeps to himself so that even in heaven he retains his deity and his full glory that no one will fully grasp. I like that one. You think you got me figured out? I'm going to keep a name that no one knows but myself just to, just to show you that I'm still the king of kings and lord of lords. Yes, you can come to the wedding banquet of the Lamb and sup with me and have intimacy, but I'm still the sovereign king, and there's some things I'm just not going to let you know because I have the right to do that. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Symbol of the cross, obviously. Could be the blood of the martyred saints as Christ has come back to vindicate their death, or it could be the blood of Christ's defeated enemies. Take take your pick. It's, you know, it's blood is a symbol of death and judgment and, and the cross. Also, notice too, he's called the Logos. In the beginning was the. Word and the word was with God and the Word was God. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Who wrote Revelation? You think you learned something between I mean you think he, you think it's accidental? His name is called the Word of God. That was that that's unique to, to John. Okay. Now it also says the armies of heaven. Oh, wait a minute. I think I'm out of order there. Yeah, Hebrews 4, 12-13 really should go under the sword coming out of his mouth. So we'll jump back up to that. Hebrews 4, 12-13 is out of order. It's a great passage of Scripture, but it doesn't really have anything to do with... Well, I guess it kind of does. I guess it does. For the Word of God. Yes, it does make sense now. He's called the Word of God. Hebrews four twelve 12-13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is not only... this. Jesus is the living word of God. Now it says there, He's followed, verse 14... Uh, the armies of heaven, arrayed arrayed in linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, there's there's some debate depending on which view of the end times you hold here. Who is this heavenly army? Could be a host of angels, which would corroborate with what have we seen so far? Matthew 24 does talk about. He's coming back with his angels. In Thessalonians, to say he's coming back with his angels. So we've seen two other two other passages that talk about the second coming accompanied by angels some people believe these are christian believers in heaven coming back i don't necessarily hold that view because when it talks about the armies of heaven almost all throughout the old testament the heavenly host the heavenly army it's almost always angelic in nature i I just think this is more than the angels coming with christ um, fighting with him Um, I'm going to skip 1 Thessalonians 4. You guys know that. That's the passage where we're we're caught up. Um, What else happens is a sharp sword comes from his mouth along with a rod of iron to rule. This goes directly back to Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is kind of scary imagery. My son, Aidan, I don't think he's watching, but maybe he is, and that's all right. When he was a little guy, Um, Back before he was saved, he was deathly afraid of the second coming of Christ. Anytime I'd preach on it or he'd talk about it, he would would say, Dad, don't talk about the coming of Christ. He was scared. Because he'd read that passage. This is scary. And so he was scared of Jesus coming back. So as Christians, are we to be scared of Jesus coming back? It's a blessed hope, what Titus says. If you're not a Christian, should you be scared? This is, scary. this is scary imagery. I mean, look at the language. He's making war. He's judging. He's coming in fire. He's coming in blood. He's got the armies of heaven with him. He's got a sharp sword. He's striking down the nations. And then look at, verse, at the end of um, verse 16. He will tread... The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He's going to execute wrath. Do you have this view of Jesus? Okay. Just wrapping it up. Yeah. You don't have to read that Isaiah passage, but back in the Old Testament, we talked about wine, drinking the cup of, of God's wrath, his his cup being poured out on the nations. Let's just stop here and talk about wrath again just in case you haven't been here and we we use the word wrath because the Bible uses the word wrath. But it's a misunderstood word in our culture. When we talk about wrath, are we talking about God being out of control, Jesus coming in out of control and just willy-nilly punishing people for no apparent reason because he just he had a bad hair day and he needs to get his, you know, he needs to let off some steam? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about wrath? No, we're talking about his settled anger against sin and his righteousness to 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 judge sin. It's 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 a it's a righteous anger that Jesus has the right to have. Yeah, it's the same thing. I um, have been very careful. I mean, the Bible uses the word wrath, but I've been kind of changing my... and not because I'm trying to be seeker-sensitive. Just on Sunday mornings, I've been using the word righteous justice more so than wrath because I think the common person that sits out in the in, on Sunday morning maybe understands justice more so than they understand wrath because in our culture... When you hear the word wrath, it makes it sound like, you know, like out-of-control anger, whereas people understand righteous justice. Now, the Bible uses the word wrath. If I'm going to use the word wrath, I'm going to explain it like I've done here today, and I often do that. Um, I think it's important to use biblical language, but we've got to explain it to this culture. I talk about propitiation. Most people don't know what that is. You've got to explain it. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Regeneration. There's a lot of words the Bible uses that we just need to explain. Okay? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. We've just seen what? The great marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's the great supper of God. "...to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army." Back in verse 16, on his robe, on his thigh, what is his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. He has the supreme name of King of kings and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. 1 Timothy six fourteen through 16 To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor. In eternal dominion. Amen. All right. <clears throat> A tale of two suppers. The Antichrist and his allies are destroyed. It says there in verse 17, Come to gather for the great supper of God, And the birds are to come eat the flesh of those that were destroyed in the fall of Babylon. Now I don't know if these birds are coming eating these people alive or eating their carcasses or what. And again, I don't know if it's a literal like all these dead people are going to be across the world and all these birds are going to come and literally start feasting on their flesh. You guys have seen it. When you drive around, you see these birds, these vultures circling. What do you know? A dead animal somewhere. Okay. All throughout the Old Testament, the whole idea of a bird of prey coming and attacking was a sign of judgment, of death. Okay. Now, look at verse 19. I saw the beast. Who's the beast? The Antichrist (laughs) and the kings of the earth. Remember the alliance we talked about last time, how the kings of the earth and the beast turned against Babylon? So here we have, have totalitarian. At this point in the world here, the world system of sensuality and immorality, Babylon has fallen. What's left in its place? Totalitarian world regime that's coming against God's people. They're gathered to make war against Jesus. Now, this is probably, it doesn't say it, it's probably a reference to Armageddon. It doesn't say Armageddon there, which we saw was not a literal place with a literal battle, but symbolic of all the nations of the earth marching to fight a God one last time under the satanic influence of the beast. What's interesting I find here, they came to make war against the rider on the horse. Do you have any description of actual warfare? What's the next verse? And the beast was captured. (laughs) Now, here's the thing, guys. Some people, when they talk about this passage of Scripture, they take it overly literalistically. This is World War III with all of these bombs and nuclear fighter jets, and everything's going, and all these nations are coming against Jerusalem to, to fight the last battle. And okay, Is Jerusalem mentioned here? Is there an actual war? And who are they coming against? They're coming against Jesus. So, again, is this a literal worldwide war, or is it a symbolic way of saying, even till the very end? the Antichrist under the leadership of Satan is going to foolishly try to fight against Jesus and loses royally. Now remember who these two men are. We talked about it earlier. And I think they're literal people at this point because it says in verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. And it says, these were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Do you throw something symbolically into a lake of fire? or do you, you know. So, yes, it's symbolic, but I think here at the end we're talking about literal people. So who was the beast? This is personification throughout all time of secular political powers that are hostile and opposed to God. In the very last day before this great event, I believe there will be a literal man. I don't think it's going to be a woman. I think it's going to be a man because it's called the man of lawlessness who emerges as a literal antichrist and he will literally be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And the same thing happens to the false prophet. Who's the false prophet? The false prophet is symbolic of false religion that tried to persuade people to actually worship the antichrist. Again, I think it's going to be a literal person uh, the minister of propaganda, if you will, who uh, comes alongside the Antichrist to try to get people to worship him, false worship. Okay. So who's been destroyed so far? Babylon. And here's the bottom line here. Both of these arch enemies, two, take Babylon out, she's already been destroyed, two of the unholy trinity have been destroyed. We'll have to wait for Satan's doom in chapter 20. When he is fully and finally destroyed in the everlasting lake of fire. The rest that were alive, kings of the earth, armies, which we assume is probably symbolic of the entire lost world. They're killed in judgment by Jesus who executes God's wrath with the sword coming out of his mouth. What's the very last image you see there about the birds? They're gorged. They're getting fat. (laughs) Like I said each week, guys, Revelation's not pretty. It's not like Philippians were, yeah, rejoice, Lord, always. Again, I say rejoice. You walk away from Philippians or something, you're like, oh, I I feel encouraged. It's encouraging yet sobering. So let's talk about a few things in summary from chapter 19. What are some things we can learn from this? Christ's decisive victory against sin and Satan was won on the cross. He's the Lamb of God who was slain. Okay? Christ has sovereignly chosen and called us before time to be His bride. That should give you great encouragement. If He called you, if He chose you before time, He called you in time, He's sustaining you in time Do you think at the very end he's going to say, I started all this stuff, I'm just going to kind of let you go to your own devices. You may make it into heaven, I'm not sure. Does Philippians 1, i I'm confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ. Jesus himself will literally, should be with, Jesus himself will literally, invisibly, and bodily return to earth in a glorious second coming. Christ will decisively destroy all God's enemies at His second coming. And there is the horrifying reality of the eternal lake of fire for the lost, but the wonderful joy of heaven for the saved. Okay. We have three chapters left of Revelation. So this is... Um, We're winding down. Next week is one of the most controversial passages. the thousand years. This is where the different camps create their theology. So next week, I may not actually bring in PowerPoint. I'm going to bring in charts and graphs. So um, what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to lay... Side by side, the three predominant views. I haven't given you guys names for these views yet. I've just kind of taught you Revelation and said I'm taking it symbolically. There's one view I lean more toward. I'm going to show you the three (coughs) views, how the three views interpret Revelation 20, the strengths and weaknesses of the three views, and who in church history and currently holds to the three views. And I'm probably going to have to draw a lot on the board. So we may not have as much PowerPoint as we're going to have more of a handout that I'm going to walk through with you. Um, Because I think it's just easier to do it that way. So you've got amillennial, premillennial, dispensational, and then premillennial, historic premillennial. I'm not going to deal with postmillennial, even though there's some that are coming out of the closet as postmillennialists. I don't want to confuse you by giving you four, just give you three. So that's where we're going next week. Any questions on chapter 19 or the book of Revelation or anything up to this point? Yes, Kevin. Back in chapter nineteen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, verse twenty one, killed by the sword, extended from the mouth of the one who rides on the horse. Isn't this the word of God? Mm-hmm. So the word of God is killing these people. In a symbolic way of. Symbolic yeah. way. Yeah. So is he judging them using the words? This is what. This is the law. They've broken. Um. They don't kind of I don't know if it's. I don't know if he's. Um. It's, it, he's he's destroying them at this point, but when we get to chapter twenty, there's the great white throne judgment, which is where they're actually going to be judged. So um, there has to be a resurrection before there's a judgment. Um, so either way you look at it, the word of God is the word of God is active and sharper than a two edged sword and penetrates and lays people bare, with whom they must you know. Regardless of whether, regardless of what it is, it's, it's going to be horrendously frightening to have Jesus come at war against you on that final day. I saw a hand over here. Yeah, Dennis. I think from, from what, uh, even at the start of this series, That some people literally they don't, they don't care what God has stated. I mean, it they don't. Mm. There's no fear there. Whatever yeah. I think, and maybe this is something that seems to be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, come kind of a cyclical type thing. But I don't know. From what the news, from what we've seen, even you know, you, you blew my mind in the sense of, that that uh, those people cheering that, yeah. uh, that abortion thing, and that continues to happen in yeah. different. You you think, how can people literally kill a baby that's just been born? It doesn't even make make sense. That that is evidence of God's wrath on a nation. Not poured out like Sodom and Gomorrah where He comes and destroys it, but it's a passive wrath where God says, if that's the way you want to go, I'm going to be hands-off. And you're going to live with the consequences of that. Now the sad thing is we as believers have to live in that culture which makes us have to be salt and light in the midst of a dark world. So God doesn't take us out of that. So when we're in a nation that is godless, we as God's people, it's kind of like we'd wish it would be like Israel was in Goshen with the plagues. God just put us in a little enclave and protect us. But it's like We're in the world, not of the world, and we have. And sometimes the judgment of God on a culture rubs off on us, and we have to live in that. And that's why there's a temptation to give in. But yes, and and here's the thing: it has gotten rapidly, like within the past. Like here was my prediction: I just said this to a few people back in 2013 when they passed Obergefell and Hodges, the gay marriage bill supreme court made gay marriage legal across the land i said just you wait that's gonna catapult depravity like you've never seen it and what's happened in five years have we seen depravity catapulted like at breakneck speed yeah and so we're living in babylon the false prophet and the beast are alive and well, whether they're manifested in an actual individual person, that the, the spirit of that as well. Is Satan alive and well? And does America get what it... Is America getting what it deserves? That's the sad thing. Yeah, Brent. America as a whole is, but the people themselves can still be... Sure. Yes, definitely. There, we pray for revival, and we pray for re- reconciliation, and we pray for God to pour out His Spirit, and we pray for a third great awakening in our nation. I mean, I mean, a lot of people are talking about that. The only hope for America is a third great awakening. You know, the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards. You know, had a second great awakening, which is theologically kind of wonky, which maybe you want to not study that as much as the first great awakening. But some people are praying for a third great awakening in America, which would be a massive repentance and revival and people getting saved and a turning around. Um, And I think we should pray for that. Now, God is sovereign over that. He may or may not do that. I think it's very, very important to pray for that. I think it's very, very important to be salt and light. I think it's very important to pray for lost people, pray for our culture, pray for our leaders. I mean, you you can have a defeatist attitude and say, well, if this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I'm just going to sit back and watch it. Or you can say, yes, it's going to happen, but maybe God has ordained for me to pray and He may do something special through it. And I'd rather be on the side of praying against this stuff than to just kind of sit back and not be and it's not going to come through politics it's going to come through the gospel that's where I think a lot of Christians kind of get they wring their hands when they look at like who's in office and who's coming this and you know Ocasio-Cortez Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez and her crazy you know all this kind of stuff and they look at all these people like that's the future of our okay it doesn't matter who's in office who's the rider on the white horse who's king of kings and lord of lords who's sovereign over all this who puts people in positions of power Jesus. So don't freak out. He's in control. Um, Our tendency is to be control freaks and want to control everything. And God says, let me be the control freak. I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, God says, let me be the one in control. Let me be the one. And that was probably not a good thing to say about God. Let me rephrase that. God is not a control freak. God is in control. We're control freaks. God is sovereignly in control. But God is the one who is orchestrating all things to his desired end. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing... Catches him off guard. He, he's sovereign, and Jesus will come back at his appointed time. And until then, what are we supposed to do? Remain faithful. Persevere to the end. Hold fast the gospel. Hold fast our testimony. Be salt and light. Pray for revival. It gives you hope? It should. We've got six minutes. Anything else? Yes, Paul. You mentioned Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. I've heard those terms, but I don't know what they mean. Can okay. You explain those? Yeah. Um, in the late 1700s, in our nation, under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, he began preaching to uh, his congregation. And um, there was also a movement in England at the same time under... John Wesley and um, um, George Whitfield that were also preaching. And so it kind of crossed over both England and America. But in America, God launched about eight or nine years of massive salvations and cultural change and widespread um, revival for a sustained period of time all across New England and that was called the First Great Awakening. So you can go look it up on Google, Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, you can read about how, um, and even George Whitfield came over um, and preached and did some revival-type stuff during that time. He was from England. Um, and so throughout the periods of the, of, uh, in history, there have been times where God's done an outpouring in a specific location for a specific period of time. There was a second great awakening in the early, like the eighteen twenties, eighteen forties ish. Then there was the um, the land, like Jeremiah Lanfear. There was the Fulton Street revival in eighteen like right before the Civil War in New York, where people met. Like for a period of two years, there was like... he st- this, this man, Jeremiah Lampier started like a, a weekly... Like a daily prayer meeting at noon for businessmen and nobody showed up. And then after like six months, thousands of... Like they say during that period of time, more people got saved in America than any other time. There's the Great Welsh Revival, 1904-1905. In Wales, there was a big revival. Um, so throughout specific periods in history... God has been sovereignly seen fit to pour out His Spirit in revival and awakening on a people. You can't control it, but there are some factors that are, that are in all of those awakenings. The primary factor that's in all of those awakenings is two things. Number one, a mighty movement <coughs> of prayer. A mighty movement of young people praying, college age, teenagers praying, and a reclaiming of the gospel, expository preaching, preaching from the true gospel, from the pulpits, not this watered down stuff. So we can't control the great awakening, but God has seen fit. Like When young people start praying, people get serious about prayer, and the gospel's recovered Those are common denominators in how God's worked in the past. They're not guarantees He will work in the past, but they're common denominators. Yeah. Now, the Second Great Awakening had some theological difficulties with it that America is still reeling from that weren't as healthy as the First Great Awakening, just at least in my opinion. Um, The First Great Awakening was more theologically solid, the Second Great Awakening, not so much. So, yes. Yeah, that was the Welsh revival. That was the Welsh the Welsh revival. Yeah, the in the k like in the mines in Wales, um the mules were used to being cussed at. And so um when the when the revival came and the men stopped cussing, uh, the mules didn't know what to do because they weren't getting cussed at anymore. Yeah, Jerry. Uh, in order to thrust the have a great uh awakening. Revival of this, don't we need The yes. Word, uh, like you preaching yes. Yeah, the the yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and, that, out and all that, yeah, you're right, Jerry. That was the kind of third thing I said is a recovery of the true gospel. Uh, yeah, not a watered down gospel, but a recovery of the true gospel. Where, and I'm encouraged because there's a lot of younger pastors around the nation probably more so than there were even 30, 40 years ago of younger pastors that are actually holding fast to the true gospel. Um, it's, it's amazing when we go to together for the gospel every two years in Louisville and you see, you know, 12,000 guys there and half of them are like under 30, you know. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yes, Kevin. What are the chances of that showing up in a different form or format, such as uh, maybe persecution drives us from the mm-hmm. ground and there's a... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not pastors from uh, uh, seminaries. Maybe yeah, it's lay people. lay people. Yeah. The, the yeah, you're, you're, you're actually right. In some, and in some nations, revival has come through persecution. God's sovereign over how it works. You guys want to pray? Let's do it. Jesus, we thank you that you're sovereign. You're King of kings and Lord of lords and you're coming back. We want to be ready. Help us to be faithful. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you you've called us to be your bride. We can't wait until the wedding supper of the Lamb. In the meantime, help us to be salt and light. And Lord, even as we prepare this Sunday to come and take the Lord's Supper, uh, let that just be a taste, a foretaste of what we'll experience on that final day. Jesus, thank you that you're victorious, you're sovereign. We trust you in all things, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.